0: Happy Easter to everybody and welcome to uh, our adult institute class in the bunker. Uh, hopefully at this time our orientation is not kind of on its head the way that it was. We think we have this figured out this time uh, and actually we have a multimedia thing to go along with it. What what uh, institute class isn't really good without a good PowerPoint uh, behind us. So. The, the, the hope here, here is that uh, as we get started uh, that this will be a good experience for you uh, being able to hear all of this okay now uh, the timing on this is actually kind of wonderful as well uh, because I've been wanting to talk for a long time about uh, Paul and the cross and the effect and the uh, what that means to Latter Day Saints and it turns out that Easter is a pretty great place for, to start doing that Okay? Now, ahead of that, though, what I really wanted to, to start off with, though, is that we all had a unique experience on Friday. And again, the timing on this is amazing. Uh, it's almost like President Nelson knew what he was doing, or the Lord did, or somebody did. Anyway, we ended up uh, having a Hosanna shout on palm sunday last sunday uh, to be able to welcome the christ in and this has been holy week leading up to today easter friday though uh, is traditionally all over the world is good friday and this is the day of the crucifixion and we're going to talk a lot about uh, the cross today but i want to talk particularly for just a moment about the fast that we did uh, because I think, it's, I think it's unique and I think it's powerful and I don't know if we necessarily understand how that works especially in uh, concert with our discussion last week about grace. Now, fasting for me has always been a little bit of a conundrum and I have learned some things over the last couple of weeks uh, because I've had some questions about what happens when we fast. Now, on one level we know I don't think any of us have any question that fasting is probably good for us in terms of our health. It's fasting is good for us in terms of unity and bringing people together. Fasting is good for us in in upping our spirituality and focusing our uh, attention on the right things. Nobody has any question, I think, about what fasting does for us. My question has always been what fasting does for God what difference does it make in his plans what difference does it make in what he was thinking of doing uh for instance is he up there saying i would really like to do things i would like to save uh, aunt uh, emma but i can't save Aunt emma because they haven't asked yet Uh, or i was going to save aunt emma from cancer uh, but because one person asked, that's not enough. I need more people to ask. In fact, if the whole ward would fast or the whole family would fast, you're going to kind of gang up on me almost in a in a sense, right? You know, oh, okay, that doesn't feel right. That's not kind of how God works. Um, but if you take a look at our discussion last time, some of this comes into to focus. Last time, for those of you who, who didn't join us, we, we were talking about uh, the power of grace and the covenant of grace. Uh, and I wish this was probably a little clearer on screen than it is. Uh, I promise it gets better. But we talked last time about the fact that grace, especially the way Paul saw grace, was that there was a covenant process here that we have from from a in ancient times the giver of a gift whether that was somebody along the same lines or whether that was somebody of greater power the the giver gives a gift it is received by someone on the other end they they get something that they didn't have before and and yet part of what made grace powerful was the return gift coming back from the giver. Now, in a bartering situation between two equals, again, we talked last time about maybe I give you a cow and in return you give me back some milk. If, if, my, if the grace and the gift that I got was from somebody much greater, someone rich or a king or a god, they're going to give me stuff that I can never hope to repay uh, and it wasn't planned that I should repay. But what I am gonna do is return with some, something in terms of loyalty or love or something that he's gonna ask. And so gratitude might become that returning gift that we give back to the giver of the gift. Now, as an interesting sort of way, though, um, so what happens with fasting? Uh, let, let me explain it this way. Uh, a couple of weeks ago um, in our class, I had a chance to talk about uh, one of my uh, kind of favorite stories, and that was uh, a story by uh, uh, C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis uh, uh, class will remember this. C- C.S. Lewis remembers uh, is to, uh, went to uh, uh, Oxford as a good Church of England kind of boy. Uh, the way that most Oxford scholars are supposed to be, he becomes an agnostic. Uh, and, and the process back for C.S. Lewis, back to uh, God and understanding God was reading something by George MacDonald where he talked about the fact that one day hell would be empty. And that was a monumental moment for C.S. Lewis. And ultimately, C.S. Lewis would go on to talk about the fact that not only would one day hell be empty, but one day they would discover that hell is locked from the inside, that they can let themselves out. Well, in a sense, The Great Divorce that C.S. Lewis is written about a group of people living in hell, living in Greytown, And they're gonna they get on a bus, and they're gonna travel and go up to heaven and they get to the staging area right in front of heaven and they're, they're ministering angels there to work with them and get them ready to go up over the mountain into heaven And and what they find is that a lot of people choose to actually get on the bus and go back to hell. Why? Because they liked where they were, they didn't wanna make the changes or they didn't believe that heaven was gonna be where it was, okay? And this is really all demonstrated by a man who comes uh, with a lizard on his shoulder? And the lizard is kind of his his private sin, his favorite sin. and you have this, and the lizard is always talking to this man and saying, "You can't live without me. you need me. Uh, you're just gonna die without me." And he's saying, "Yes, I need you, I love you. Can I just kind of take care of you? Can I maybe? You know, and the ministering angel talking to this man says, not only you're going to have to give up the angel, but you're going to, or the, the, the uh, lizard, but you're going to have to kill the lizard. In fact, you're going to have to let me kill the lizard. And the man is saying, no, I don't want you to do that. And finally the angel keeps saying, let me kill the lizard. And finally the man says, here, take it. I can't bear to leave it, but take it from me. And it's really telling that the angel is then saying to him, I can't do this without your permission. Without, you have agency. You have to be willing to give me that lizard so that I can then kill it. And the man goes through all kinds of gymnastics. How do I do this? You take it. No, I'm not going to take it. And what you get is this angel saying, what I value more than anything is your agency, your ability to choose. And finally, in tears in the book, the man finally gives the lizard to the angel, the angel then kills it, and then in a great story, uh, the angel becomes this magnificent steed with wings like a pegasus, and the man be- begins to glow and becomes powerful and gets on the steed and rides all over the mountain and into heaven, but he had to give up the lizard. And, he- and the lizard wasn't gonna be gone until he could ask. Well, if we come to this idea of, of grace, we're going to talk about the fact that a gift is given we receive this thing that we don't we can't pay back the things that we need coming from this from a divine place the return gift is our gratitude or our our appreciation or or Jesus says if you love me if you love my gift then love one another or in other words If you love me, keep my commandments, which will teach you how to love. If you really love me, transform and be transformed by my commandments. That's the return gift. But in this case, and like on Friday, we had a need that we couldn't yet. We we needed to be able to uh, exercise our agency together to be able to ask the great God for grace. To, so through fasting and prayer, we exercised our agency to say, take the lizard. <laughs> we, we need you to take this. You can do something that we can't. But we had to exercise our faith in order to do that, and that is we're asking for the gift. And that comes out of a place of surrendering our will, surrendering our agency, Because the one thing God can't do is save a man against his will. And he will not save us in our sins. And he's anxious to provide that for us. But he will not violate that agency that we fought so hard for. On the other side of the veil, that is one of those supreme eternal laws that God respects and loves and will not violate under any circumstances. I don't think the eternities would allow him to do that. Now, so to me, something very powerful happened on Friday. There was the exercising of millions of people asking for grace, asking for a gift, asking for something that we didn't have We desperately need the virus to be mediated, the results to begin to settle down, begin to be able to move back and begin to reclaim our lives. And right now it just seems to be out of our control, something that we can't do in and of ourselves. We need him to do that. And we have to unite and ask. And whether it's in the temple or other places, the uniting of a group of people with their agency together has a powerful effect on being enabling our God to be able to act in a way that would have been violating our agency if he had just um, stepped in Uh, you can't even picture can you The, the, the Savior saying I stand at the door and knock and by the way if you want to unlock the door I'm kicking the door down I'm going to knock it out because you really need what I have and I'm going to make sure that you get it dang it uh, I know sometimes as parents we would really like to say you guys aren't getting it yet uh, And I'm going to make sure that you get it uh, And I will violate your agency to make sure this good stuff happens to you uh, It's a battle right uh, So that was Friday and, it, and not only that this is so there was a gift given on Friday of a a loving God hearing our petitions but of all days for us to do that, to do that on a good Friday when the original gift was wrought for us. The cross the suffering torture, death of God is, is remarkable in its scope and it's, and it's something that sometimes in our, in, in, our, in our study, we tend to move past it far, far too quickly. So part of what I wanted to be able to do today then, as we, as we look at this, uh, when we talk about uh, the cross, especially in Latter-day Saint circles, uh, we have tended to de-emphasize the cross quite a bit um we have we have tended to emphasize the resurrected Christ, not the cross, uh, that has resulted in a lot of confusion sometimes among other Christian sects. Uh, I hope that maybe in our discussion here that I might be adding a plea to say maybe we need to be more aware and we might meet, need to be have more respect, uh, and I'm certainly going to make a case for that. but Along with that, then let's let's talk about some of the questions that come up in regard to um, Latter-day Saints and the cross. Um, one of those questions that we might have, because of our our emphasis in that magnificent moment that happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, and and having been there not too long ago, and feeling palpably. The power and the spirit that exists in the Garden of Gethsemane, even to this day, was very moving. Uh, And I think it is for most people that come ready to step among those olive trees and just feel what is there. But in doing that, I think we're caused to ask some questions and as we take a step two days backwards or, or later in that day from Gethsemane. The question would be, did Jesus have to die or was the garden enough? For instance, if he had gone through the Garden of Gethsemane experience and then walked out and was not crucified and then died in his sleep and then was resurrected, would that have needed to be enough? Or did it have to be crucifixion? Yes. Did it have to come with intense suffering? Yes. Did he have to die in that way? Yes. And then we ask, why? Hopefully we'll answer some of that uh, in just a moment. Did it have to be a suffering death? Again, yes. But we're not always sure why. It would have to be a, a suffering death. And ultimately, for our, our discussion, for those of you who are joining us, uh, in this class, we've been taking a, a look at Paul uh, and his travels and the things that he's doing. Uh, and, and again, just as a, a side note, uh, we've been able to use uh, books like... Uh, Thomas Wayman's new book on uh, the New Testament—a translation for Latter-day Saints—beautifully uh, done, and uh, and opened up in more common language. We're able to look more clearly at the words of Paul in, in to Romans and Hebrews and Philippians, and and read more clearly what it is that he was saying. And we've been. Uh, We've, we've been having a pretty good time in having all of that unlocked to us. So as we're looking through those kind of uh, BYU scholar, LDS scholar kind of eyes at things that we've probably read or not, or not really understood very well, we begin to, we can ask some real, really hard questions. What was Paul doing with the symbol of the cross? What did he do with that? And we're going to find in just a minute that he did something very radical, and and he actually, in the way that he shaped Christianity, uh, he did it in a very very powerful way, uh, th- for one that still resonates with us uh, today. But from an LDS standpoint, leading up to that, I want to take uh, I want to take a, a step back a little bit, um, because, again, in the in the. As Latter-day Saints, we we uh, we love and revere uh, the Book of Mormon. And we find in there our, our keystone, and, and there are keystones that unlock what we're also reading in the Bible because we love the Bible uh, so much as well. And the two get to be intertextually opening each other up, and we can see each one sh- shines a light on the other, making both more powerful. Okay, So when we take a look at something as basic and powerful as the cross one of the questions we ought to look at before we take a look at Paul in the New Testament is does the Book of Mormon look at the cross how does the Book of Mormon look at the cross and what effect does that have in in the way that Book of Mormon prophets wrote uh, as they had an experience with uh, the cross now there is a, um, one of the most powerful expressions of the cross that uh, as I was studying and getting ready for this class, kind of kind of took my breath away a little bit when I started uh, actually contemplating what was going on here. Um, and it actually comes out of the, the book of Jacob. And Jacob, as he is as he is uh, writing, and he's telling the people down the road, one of the what did they do as Nephites during the time of Jacob, uh, the younger brother of Nephi? And here's what he says: Wherefore, we labored diligently among our people, that we might persuade them to come unto Christ, and partake of the goodness of God, that they might enter into His rest. Now, this is pretty remarkable for uh, people of a lot of other faith traditions that we're talking about this specifically about Christ and we're doing it around 500, mid-500 BC that they knew and understood who he was and they were writing specifically about him. Uh, But that said... Jacob is saying specifically, We labored diligently that we might persuade them to come unto Christ 500 years before Christ would come and partake of the goodness of God that they might enter into his rest. Now, how did he want them to do that? What was Jacob's method for having them come unto Christ? And look at what he does. And I think it is really remarkable and I can't count how many times I've read right by this without it actually kind of landing in my brain. This time it took... um, But, he says, that all men would believe in Christ. Then he says, here's what we did. That all men would believe in the Christ and view his death and suffer his death. Cross and bear the shame of the world. Now let's unpack that for a minute. Uh, I think at, during the times of the sacrament and other times and we're thinking about and on Easter we're thinking about think on Christ think on his gift and, and we picture and, and rightly should the rolling back of the tomb the empty tomb the weeping women Peter and John trying desperately to find him. Mary Magdalene standing in the garden and saying to the gardener, where have you taken my Lord? And then being the first to witness the resurrected Lord. Those we know. We think about what comes later on uh, that Easter day that he's going to meet with uh, his apostles in the upper room and he's going to show himself to them those are magnificent and they're faith promoting but let me just suggest to you something if I'm one of the apostles it would be very easy in that upper room having the Savior standing in front of me and me being able to feel the nail prints in his hands it would be pretty easy at that moment to believe in Christ Because he's there. Tougher for Thomas, Thomas has got to get there. He's still not quite sure. He hasn't seen him yet. It would be fairly easy at that moment to be a disciple of Christ and be filled with the Spirit and love and adoration about what you've just witnessed. But what about those disciples three days earlier, two days earlier? And what they're not looking at is his resurrection. What they're doing is viewing his death. How hard is it then to be a believer in Christ when you're watching him die, when you're watching him suffer, when you're watching him bleed? Tell me there aren't doubts. This isn't how it was supposed to work. Even the Christ on the cross gives us some suggestion of doubts. When he says Eloi Eloi Lama Thani, Father where did you go? And, and, and the Greek word for that is genuine confusion. The Savior very possibly died with some concern, maybe even doubts. Did this program work? And certainly to those disciples standing there watching him die and then watching him breathe his last it is finished and then they take his body down and put it in a tomb how's your belief at that point how much are you believing for Jacob Jacob says I would that all men would believe in Christ and view his death we say that differently and view his death in the midst of doubt not at the good moments in the room with him resurrected on the cross view his death in the middle of his doubts and our doubts view his death and then do what and then suffer his cross when did Jesus suffer his cross well he didn't suffer his cross on that beautiful morning on the uh, when he was speaking the beatitudes on the sermon on the mount he doesn't suffer his cross on top of the Mount of Transfiguration when he's gloried. Jesus suffered his cross when, he, when the cross is placed on him after he was beaten and tortured and he's on his way to an excruciating death. That's when he suffered his cross not in his good moments but in his doubts and his deepest pain. And what happened as a result of that and what made that so so much harder? Jacob will tell you, not only do you view his death and suffer his cross, but then you bear the shame of the world. In the midst of those doubts, can you stand up as a Christian? In the midst of those doubts, can you stand up and say, he was resurrected? Or when you're bearing the shame of the world, do you throw the cross off and go, well, that ain't... That's, I'm going to be kind of unpopular if I say what I'm going to say and believe what I'm going to believe. If we're going to view his death and suffer his cross and bear the shame, he says, that's the Christ we need to come to. We don't like to view his death. We don't. Again, ask, ask someone who's LDS why it is that we don't use the cross. We say, well, we we worship the resurrected Christ. And we do. Look at our new logo. We worship the resurrected Christ. But Jacob is saying, view his death. Understand his crucifixion. Understand the grace that occurred on that cross. Understand that. If you will do that, you will then be tempted to then... Take up your own cross and suffer the shame of the world. And that phrase is going to be Paul. If you want to understand what Paul was teaching to the Gentiles and to the Jews all over the Mediterranean, it is that view his death, suffer his cross, bear the shame, which is what he did. He says, I am crucified every day. Paul said. So for Jacob, Jacob is going to say, wherefore I, Jacob, take it upon me to fulfill the commandment of my brother Nephi. I will do this by having them view his death and celebrate that sacrifice on that moment. That That's pretty amazing. Uh, the way that uh, BYU professor uh, Deidre, Deidre Nicole uh, Green, here's what she said about that moment. By viewing the duration of Christ's death, we witness and embrace loss that has not yet found resolution. In other words, the Savior understands us when we are doubting and there is not yet a resolution. He understands our fear and anxiety when we're going through a a pandemic and we don't necessarily know yet how this is going to end and what way does this finally come together and what way do we get our world back there's this unknown sitting over here that we don't have yet and for those disciples standing there and looking up at the cross and not yet having the resolution of Sunday afternoon with him those are those doubts those are those fears when we don't know how this is going to work out a recently divorced mom saying I don't know how I do this going forward and I'm on a lost I just think there's so many places where we have, we're going to have to witness and embrace loss that hasn't yet found resolution that is where brothers and sisters that viewing his cross I think means everything to us okay so that said then and uh, Alma would then chime in and saying, Concerning that which is to come, also concerning the resurrection of the dead and the redemption of the people, which is to be brought to pass through the power and sufferings and death of Christ and his resurrection. The Book of Mormon people looked at his death and they looked at the cross and they understood the cross. Uh, as that symbol of where they needed to be able to look. Okay, now, so let's, let's take that knowledge now, pull back, and let's take a look at what Paul is doing. Uh, back in, in January in this class, I, I, I told the class that uh, one of the people that I really like in studying uh, about the Apostle Paul is a wonderful ex-Anglican uh, bishop and theologian and historian by the name of NT Wright. NT Wright is powerful and he's wonderful. And 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 he has this wonderful British accent. And one of the things that and, and when you when you hear him speak or his writing he will he will say to you, and just what exactly did Paul think he was doing? And what did this dynamic little man think he was up to? <laughs> well, we've been asking that question all along. What exactly did Paul think he was doing, uh, and, and what was his program, and what was up? We're about to see it. We're about to find out what Paul believed that he was doing, and it's and it's pretty amazing if you take a look on its on its core. Um, we have found as, as we look at this some real parallels between Joseph Smith and Paul. For Joseph, he felt like he was having to do this restoration of gospel. Uh, one of his, um, one of the visions, uh, the, one of the uh, retelling of the first vision, he talks about how God has told him that the everlasting covenant had been broken. Joseph believes that, and he's working hard towards res- the restoration of all things. Things have to be restored. Well, in a sense, Paul is having to do the same thing. Paul is not does not believe that he is going from one religion, Judaism, to another religion, Christianity. Paul believes that what he is doing is a restoration of what has been there all along. He is restoring what is there anciently. And that's why he's going to say that Jesus gave his life for me and he loved me and he died for me. And then he will add, according to the scriptures. Remember that for Paul, he didn't have the book of Matthew and Luke and, and all those kind of things in front of him. What he had was Deuteronomy and Genesis and and Daniel. And he had the Hebrew scriptures in front of him. And he is proving the coming of Jesus through those scriptures but part of it is this amazing vision that he has. When he walks into a synagogue in Ephesus and he begins to preach he's speaking to a group of Jews who believe that they are the covenant chosen people they are the heirs of Abraham and that they are the blessed people and they have Uh, all of those rights and covenants and promises and they're right but what is needing to be restored is what Paul brings to the table Paul is going to say yes but you're forgetting a part of this yes you are the Abraham, you are direct descendants of Abraham but remember that the Abrahamic promise was not just to you, it was to start with you and ultimately, it was to go to the whole world, that all the world would be blessed through you. You get caught up in in kind of the covenantness, and we stay inside here rather than saying this blessing, this covenant of Abraham, is supposed to be taken to the rest of the world. Uh, this isn't a closed shop; this is an open invitation. So when Paul is going to start preaching the gospel, he's going to say things like, in Galatians three, he's going to say, "For you," and he's and he's speaking primarily in Galatians, He's speaking uh, primarily to Greeks, pagans. For you are all the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many as of you. Uh, were baptized in Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. And then he's going to say very emphatically, there is no longer Greek or Jew nor is there slave or free nor male or female for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And, and here's the kicker, and this would have been, this would have gone right, this is probably what got him stoned over and over and over in the synagogues. Uh, And if you belong to Christ, you are descendants of Abraham, heirs, according to the promise. Imagine what he's saying. Yes, uh, as a a, uh, faithful Jew, you can be heir to the kingdom. But guess what? So can Caesar and so can the slave in Philippi. And, and becoming heirs to the promises of Abraham is open to the tent maker in Corinth and to the Pharisee living in Capernaum. There is a revolution that is here and all of you are going to be no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens in the household of God. All of you. And then he's going to say, and how did that occur? At what moment did all of us become heirs to all the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whether you're Greek or Jew or slave or free? When was that moment? And he's going to say very clearly on the cross. The symbol of the cross is the symbol of everybody being able to come together and become heirs to this kingdom. The cross is the symbol of that. Uh, Now, that's an astonishing idea. Uh, We we remember, for instance... uh, that crucifixion in the first century is pretty messy business. Uh, Crucifixion um, is one of those things that uh, even though the Romans weren't the first to do it, they really kind of perfected it. Um, And I think it's fascinating that, um, for instance, if we look at Jewish history, a couple of decades before the Savior is born, and before he comes to live as a child in Nazareth. Uh, There is an uprising uprising, uh, close by to Nazareth in Sepphoris. And the the Romans have to come in and put down this Jewish uprising. Uh, Now, one of the ways that they did to make sure that people wouldn't do this to them again uh, is that they crucified those rebel leaders and people that they caught that were uh, rising up against them. But they didn't put them way up on a hill with, uh, with, the, with the sunlight breaking over the top of it and a halo. The idea of crucifixion, as Deuteronomy kind of suggests, is that generally they were hung on a tree. Sometimes there might be wood to actually form a, a crucifix, but oftentimes they were just hung on a tree. And where? there is a there's a short uh path uh just a few miles between nazareth down to uh, uh, Sepphoris. at the time of again shortly before jesus came to to be raised there when that rebellion was put down there was a line of crosses that went all the way down that road And in order to be hung on a tree or hung on a cross, it wouldn't have to be very high, generally just a couple of feet. So that basically, if somebody is hanging on a tree for days, long, excruciating death, they were there so you could actually look eyeball to eyeball with somebody that is in pain and dying and suffering. If you wanted to, and they would, they, they might... Um, uh, mock them make fun of them throw things at them a very humiliating experience, generally crucified naked to, just so, to take away everything every part of your humanity from you and just have you slowly kind of rot in the sun that was crucifixion and it was meant to be uh, a signal to everybody else to don't mess with Rome <laughs> don't mess with us and for anybody who'd walked that road they, that, they would have remembered so for maybe for uh, Jesus' parents, maybe grandparents certainly the graybeards in the synagogue in Nazareth uh, they would have remembered those experiences and the idea of anybody being crucified would be a horrifying kind of thing so, so what did they do when the Savior starts saying to his disciples, "I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be lifted up, so that I can draw men unto me"? You know, you can't blame Peter going, "No, no, 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 don't do that. That's not what's going to happen to you. You're the Christ. You're not going to be crucified this way. That's only for the, that's only for uh, slaves and horrible people." What are you thinking? And yet Jesus begins to say over and over, I will go. I will go. I will be uh, blessed a- enough to be able to suffer for my people. And that was so incongruous, they couldn't hardly believe that. Why would anybody think that? And and that's why I think there's real poignancy also at the end of the Savior's ministry remember when he says to Peter um, lovest thou me more than these at the end of Matthew well yea, Lord you know yeah well then feed my sheep and then he goes on to say when you were young you could go wherever you wanted to go and yet when you're older they will take you where you don't want to go and you will die like I did In other words, Peter, there's a crucifixion waiting for you. And you watched it happen to me. Now it's going to happen to you. Well, that that dark cloud of a possible crucifixion coming, and then to actually have it happen, uh, would have cast such a pall over everything. Um, But what's remarkable then is that when... Here comes Paul and his and his revolution, <laughs> and he's gonna he's gonna show up in town and start saying this. We we worship a resurrected God, one who died on a who died and then was resurrected, and they're gonna say, how did he die? In our in our mythology, our gods don't die and then are resurrected. Zeus would never let that happen. Artemis would never let that happen. What are you thinking? Um, But then he's going to step up, like in 1 Corinthians, and he's going to say, for the message of the cross, the cross for Paul then becomes the symbol of everything that he's trying to teach. The message of the cross, the power of the cross, is foolishness to those that are perishing. It is it, it's beyond. It's almost beyond belief. But to those who are saved, it is the power of God. Can you imagine if somebody kind of knocked on your door and said, "Hey, we, you know, we want to bring you the the good news of the gospel. We worship a God uh, who was." Uh, killed in the on the electric chair on death row, and by the way, he was then resurrected, and he now sits in the in in heaven, and we worship him, and because of that, we can we're all free. <laughs> they said, "You're worshiping a criminal that died on electric chair." Yes, isn't that wonderful? Well, in a certain sense, they're going. Uh, the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing but to those who are saved it is the power of God. Do you see why it is that sometimes we would rather look on the resurrection of Christ rather than look on his death? It's just kind of incongruous. We don't necessarily like doing that. But then he's going to go on and say, for Jews ask for signs. How do you know that somebody's going to be a Messiah? Well, you know, Jews kind of ask for a sign. And Greeks seek for wisdom. They're going to spend endless days kind of searching through and talking about it, looking for wisdom in whatever they can find. Okay? But we declare to you a crucified Christ, to the Jews, a scandal and foolishness to the Gentiles. And an amazing amazing sort of way Paul said as I as I take this gospel it would have been very easy for Paul to say how about I hide the cross stuff it would be easier on my marketing campaign and certainly easier to sell if we leave out that sticky little point about the cross we can just say he died he's resurrected he taught us how to love one another Uh, he is you know he was a great teacher as so many want to kind of categorize he was this wonderful rabbi but Paul says no we will declare to you a crucified Christ now I get it to the Jews this will be a scandal and the Gentiles and the pagans are going to think this is the dumbest thing they've ever heard It's foolishness. But to him, the symbol of the cross was the moment the revolution started. To quote N.T. Wright, Good Friday is where bond and free, male and female were going to be joined together into the same kingdom and have all the access to Abraham's promises. And it would come through the cross and through his death and resurrection. Now, again, that's a pretty hard lesson to carry to the masses. Especially to uh, pagans who are used to worshipping and they have a pantheon of pretty powerful gods. It's like somebody who is really steeped on all the Avenger movies and they're all about superpowers and great stuff and everything and we're going to say yeah there is one greater than all the avengers and by the way he died on a cross and was resurrected (laughs) wow okay that's how, how dumb is that story okay now in speaking then to the galatians paul's going to take this message of revolution farther and again, remember, he's trying to restore what was, what was one day there, what Abraham knew, but Jews in the first century had long since forgotten in all the waves of exile and conquest and building a temple and rebuilding a temple and, and all of those kind of things, all of these important truths about a coming Messiah And the suffering servant that you find in Isaiah 53 and 52, uh, all the things that he would go through, that's all lost. And Paul is bringing it back. Why? Because he studied the Old Testament. And he's trying to say to them, here is what was lost. Let me restore all of this in in its glory. So, Here's this here's this weak, gimpy guy that from beatings and and again later in his life, especially as we get uh, into like his third journey, uh, we think he may have been losing eyesight. Uh, he may have had a limp or scars from the things that he had been through at that point of his life. Um, to the Galatians, he's going to say, "I will certainly not boast, except." in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world and then he's going to say it's neither circumcision or uncircumcision that benefits us what matters is a new creation so what did, the, what did he mean by the fact that the world has been crucified to me when Paul talks about how we return the returning of grace that we've been given that we are saved by grace but our return gift of gratitude involved a couple of things one we were supposed to go down into the, the watery grave of baptism and come out in new life to be to, to, to uh, talk about his death and resurrection that we too are going to co- become new creatures in Christ. We start a new life. And we have to issue that sign. So baptism is a sign that we have decided to follow him. <coughs> and it's a sign to anybody who would be looking around to say, Yep, we're going to publicly witness that we're doing this. But then he's going to say, But the whole world that everything my whole world, I- imagine what his world would have been. There's a pretty good chance that if he wasn't a member of the Sanhedrin at the time, the stoning of Stephen, he was at least an associate member of the Sanhedrin or a trusted friend of the Sanhedrin uh, or whatever that was. He was in pretty good shape with the leading Jews of Jerusalem enough that they could say, yep, go up to Damascus and grab more Jews and bring them back and we'll deal with them, okay? He was living a pretty cushy life even and life was pretty good and he had lots of honor and what he's saying is, is that since I have come to the cross I have my world has been crucified as well I have lost everything and indeed he has and we know that he may have lost some members of his family we know other members of his family that uh, may have rallied to him but but all the things that he would have lost. So the, the world, and then on top of that, he's talking about his sins, his desires. They're, they're all lost to him. Uh, life, life is much more of a struggle. He says, I, fight, he says, I battle against the, the earthy man, the man of the earth. Uh, King Benjamin would then call that the natural man same guy i battled that guy but uh the world has been crucified to me and i to the world if i'm going to take on his cross and bear his shame then i'm gonna i'm gonna get stoned (laughs) i'm gonna get run out of town one of the beliefs we're going to be looking at uh, the book of romans next week Uh, start looking at that but one of the reasons why he started making plans to go to Rome, is that city by city by city, those places began to be shut to Paul. He was no longer going to be safe in Corinth. Sometimes from some of the members. He was certainly not going to go back to Ephesus, where we think he spent a couple of years in prison and had the sentence of death passed on him. He wasn't going to go to... In fact, on his last journey, he sails past... (laughs) <laughs> Ephesus to go to Miletus and then say you guys in Ephesus come down and talk to me we're going to I'm not willing to go back to Ephesus have a hard time to go back to his beloved uh, saints in uh, Philippi where he would have loved to go but there was so much tumult against him that those, those places that he loved being had been crucified and sacrificed against him he'd lost all of that the only place left to go was Rome, and he said, "He said I'm going to go to Rome, and then he and then he makes noises like he may go as far as Spain, but certainly he has not yet been to Rome. the The members of the way, the church, are growing in Rome, and he wants to go visit them, but he hasn't yet been to Rome, where he will ultimately die. Um, so. City by city by city by city is being lost. And then remember his last time, even in Jerusalem, he goes to Jerusalem, and we think it's members of the church there that set him up uh, in the temple and have a Gentile go with him. That almost results in his stoning uh, in Jerusalem, and then results in him claiming Roman citizenship, and then they're going to take him off to appeal to Caesar. So all of these places that he loved and, and people are being shut off to him. He was crucified. Uh, in terms of the people that he loved and wanted to be with, that's that's a hard that's a hard process. Okay, so so let me in in kind of winding down a little bit here. L- let me uh, let me mention uh, what Gay Strathorn has said. BYU professor who has wrote a beautiful uh, article and has written extensively about the importance of the cross in in LDS uh, circles. Uh, here's what she says thus the symbol of the cross is not a post biblical symbol adopted by Christians sometimes we want to say well the cross wasn't really used until Constantine and Constantine uh, sees a vision in the sky and he sees the cross and he says if you want to conquer uh, you need to conquer under this symbol and if you use this symbol that you will be you will come away victorious Uh, and because of that not only that is he going to accept Christianity but he's going to turn the whole Roman Empire uh, coming out of Constantinople he's going to turn all those into Christians and sometimes we wanted to say well that's the moment that Christians started using the cross is not until 300 uh, AD it's not, it's not true it wasn't true for the Nephites and it wasn't true for Paul In that first century, in 45, and 50, and 55 A.D., thus the symbol of the cross is not a post-biblical symbol adopted by Christians. Rather, it's a symbol, she says, identified by the Savior Himself. I will be lifted up, and emphasized by Paul. Then she's going to say, the symbol of the cross is important because. In the New Testament, it is the symbol of our discipleship to take up our cross and commitment to leave behind the allurements of the world and dedicate ourselves to the Lord and His kingdom. The cross means a lot to us. I think we, I think we disregard the cross in, and we lose something in the process. We don't, we, and by doing that, we don't take one single thing away from what we believe happened in Gethsemane. Gethsemane is where it starts. But the full power and magnitude and the, and the, the victory over sin and the bringing of a new revolution happened on the cross. And it happened as he conquered death. And he conquered death in the midst of doubts of his disciples and perhaps even doubts of his own. But ultimately that cross becomes a symbol of victory for him and for Christians going forward. I think we should rejoice in the cross. I love our new logo. and we we worship a resurrected, victorious Christ, that Christus statue, with the marks of the cross in his hands and in his feet and in his side. Of all the things that he could have chosen to bear witness to as a sign to those humble Nephites in 3rd Nephi, it was the symbol of the cross. Are all of those symbols that he bears those you, I've engraved that image on my hands you're there and I recognize that and, and he says that is where uh, I remember you from his sufferings on the cross brothers and sisters is my testimony that as we, as we take a look at the beauty of that is the cross that sometimes I think we have to get past some of our own cultural biases that maybe over our, our LDS culture has had some bias against the cross uh, and, we, and, and yet on the other hand we ought to be loving and welcoming of this great symbol great symbol of his crucifixion and his victory over death and his victory over doubt and for Paul going forward to those early pagans and, and far-flung uh, dysphoria uh, Jews, it was a symbol to them that something remarkable, remarkable had happened and outside their normal experience. I bury my testimony on this Easter that we receive grace from that death. A gift was given, and what he asked for us in return is our loving devotion and our transformation as we keep his commandments. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. That was thin.